New York, this is Democracy Now! What we're doing here tonight is protesting against the government wants to get all the power to itself and take all the rights from our citizens. And this is why we're here, fighting for our democracy. A general strike has largely shut down Israel following a weekend of massive protests against Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the judiciary and his firing of Israel's defense minister. As hundreds of thousands of Israelis call for preserving democracy in Israel, fewer demanding democratic rights for Palestinians, we'll go to Tel Aviv for the latest. Then, as the United Nations warned, two billion people lack safe water. We'll look at the fight to protect water across the globe. Water needs to be at the center of the global political agenda. All of humanity's hopes for the future depend in some way on charting a new science-based course to bring the water action agenda to life. And we'll remember the human rights activist and lawyer Randall Robinson, the founder of TransAfrica, who's died at the age of 81. He played a critical role in the anti-apartheid movement in the United States. He was a prominent critic of U.S. policy in Haiti. In 2004, he helped expose the U.S. role in the coup that ousted Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. The problem is with our democracy. It wasn't ever with theirs that we feel that we, by divine right, can go in and overthrow governments willy-nilly when they are living under leadership of their own clear choice. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Israel, hundreds of thousands of people poured into the streets over the weekend as the country's political crisis reached new heights. On Sunday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu fired Defense Minister Yoav Gallant one day after Gallant called for a halt to the government's drastic judicial overhaul, which has triggered months of mass protests and international condemnation. Gallant said the plan posed a security threat after the military warned it may have to reduce operations as a growing number of reservists said they will refuse to show up for duty in protest. Israel's largest trade union is on a general strike today. Histadrut represents over 700,000 workers across various industries, including banks, health care and transportation. New York's Israeli consul general resigned in protest Sunday. In Tel Aviv, police used water cannons against protesters late Sunday as they blocked a multi-lane highway. Fires were set in at least two major roads. In Jerusalem, Jerusalem crowds also rallied outside Netanyahu's private residence. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But uh, we have no, no, no other choice but to fight. And that's what we need to do. Meanwhile, Israeli violence towards Palestinian continues. Israeli soldiers stormed Al-Aqsa Mosque in East Jerusalem over the weekend, forcibly removing Palestinian worshippers, marking the holy month of Ramadan. On Sunday, Palestinian authorities said Israeli settlers burned down a home in a town northeast of Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. President Biden declared a federal emergency after a devastating tornado killed at least 25 people in Mississippi and one in Alabama. Entire neighborhoods were flattened. Mississippi residents recounted the harrowing moment the storm hit their homes. Going through my head. Lord, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want me or the kids to die. Ran, got in the bathroom, in the tub with my wife, and all threw pillows over us, and we could hear stuff hitting the roof, a lot of trees down. 
While visiting the aftermath of the tornado, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas warned extreme weather events are increasing in gravity, in severity and in frequency. Over 20 million people across the south and southeastern U.S. are under threat of more severe storms today. In Tunisia, the Coast Guard says it recovered the bodies of 10 migrants Sunday after their ship sank in the Mediterranean. The disaster came just hours after a human rights group said another 19 refugees from sub-Saharan Africa drowned off Tunisia's coast as they tried to cross to Italy to seek asylum. At least 67 migrants were reportedly missing. This comes as Italy's government says the number of migrants arriving at Italian ports has tripled in the first three months of 2023, with more than 4,000 people disembarking in in southern Italy over the weekend. On Saturday, a humanitarian aid ship rescued 78 migrants aboard a sinking rubber dinghy in international waters near Malta. One day earlier, the rescue ship Geo Barents, operated by Doctors Without Borders, rescued 190 migrants, including unaccompanied minors, off the coast of Italy. Virginia Miel Gonzalez, a coordinator with the group, said a new set of rules passed by Italy's far-right government last month has severely curtailed rescue efforts in the Mediterranean. Our main concern would be being detained, uh, so being uh, yeah, stopped from doing what we are doing. Uh, we are rescuing uh, people in the Mediterranean Sea, which is something that it will still happen. The people will still uh, use this route. Ukraine called for an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council Sunday as NATO condemned Russia for its, quote, dangerous and irresponsible suggestion it could soon deploy tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. President Vladimir Putin made the comment Saturday. Alexander Lukashenko is right. He says, listen, we're your closest allies. Why do the Americans deploy their nuclear weapons to their allies on their territory, train the crews, pilots, how to use this type of weapon if needed? We agreed that we will do the same. The head of the U.N.'s nuclear watchdog, Rafael Grossi, is due to visit the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant this week amidst ongoing fears over a possible nuclear disaster. The plant has had to rely on its emergency diesel generator six times over the past year due to attacks in the region. On the battlefield, the Russian mercenary Wagner Group said it captured a metal plant in the north of Bakhmut. This comes after Ukraine said its military still holding on to the decimated eastern city, which has been the site of some of the war's fiercest battles for months. In Afghanistan, at least six civilians were killed and several others wounded today in an explosion near the Afghan foreign ministry in Kabul. A police spokesperson said the blast occurred after guards shot a suicide bomber near a security checkpoint, leading to a heavily fortified street housing several government buildings. Honduras has formally cut ties with Taiwan while establishing diplomatic relations with China. In a statement issued Sunday, Honduras's foreign ministry called Taiwan an inalienable part of Chinese territory and said Beijing is the sole legitimate government there. Taiwan said it was closing its main embassy and a consulate in Honduras and is withdrawing its ambassador. The move leaves Taiwan with just 13 diplomatic partners, most of them in Central America, the Caribbean and the South Pacific. Vice President Kamala Harris has begun a week-long tour of Africa during her first stop in Ghana. Harris said the Biden administration is committed to increasing economic investments across Africa. Harris will also visit Tanzania and Zambia as the U.S. seeks to counter Africa's growing ties with Russia and China. 
The government of Chad says it's nationalized all assets and rights held by ExxonMobil. The U.S. gas giant announced last year it sold its operations in Chad and Cameroon to U.K.-based Savannah Energy, which said it would contest Chad's nationalization plan. The West African nation has the tenth largest oil reserves in Africa and exports 90 percent of its oil. In Germany, transportation is at a standstill as workers nationwide hold a 24-hour mega-strike. Union leaders say pay raises are a matter of survival for workers amid soaring inflation. It's the latest mass action led by unions in Europe as people struggle with mounting food and energy costs. Here in the U.S., educational staff in Los Angeles reached a tentative deal with the school district late Friday following a three-day strike. If approved, some 30,000 bus drivers, special education assistants, cafeteria workers, custodians and others will receive a 30 percent wage increase, retroactive pay of up to $8,000, and average salaries of $33,000, up from $25,000. 35,000 L.A. public school teachers joined the picket line last week with the educational support workers. In other labor news, workers ousted the appointed president of the United Auto Workers in its first direct election by union members. Sean Fain, a three-decades-long union member, has vowed to take a tougher approach in contract negotiations. The UAW has been dogged by corruption scandals in recent years. Former President Donald Trump held his first major rally for his 2024 presidential campaign in Waco, Texas, Saturday, vowing to destroy the deep state, railing against prosecutors investigating his alleged crimes. When they go after me, they're going after you. The only way to stop these arsonists is to rebuke and reject this evil persecution by sending us straight back to the White House to expel the communists and the Marxists and all of them in 2024. Waco is currently marking the 30th anniversary of the federal siege of the Branch Davidians, an anti-government cult led by David Koresh, which ended in the deaths of 86 people. Waco has continued to hold symbolic value to right-wing extremists, including Timothy McVeigh, who said it inspired his deadly terror attack at a federal building in Oklahoma City exactly two years later in 1995. Timothy McVeigh was executed. Prior to the rally, Trump posted on his site Truth Social that filing charges against him could result in, quote, potential death and destruction. The Manhattan grand jury that could indict Trump is expected to resume its work today. Trump also posted a photo of himself holding a baseball bat next to a picture of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. On Friday, Trump referred to Bragg, Manhattan's first black DA, as an animal. Also on Friday, Bragg's office received a letter containing a typewritten death threat and white powder. The Texas Observer says it's shutting down and will lay off its 17-person staff after 68 years of publication. The storied magazine was the longtime home of progressive journalists, including Ronnie Duggar, Molly Ivins, and Kay Northcott. The Observer is known for its combative style, its muckraking investigative journalism for providing an independent voice in the face of mass media consolidation. In eastern Pennsylvania, at least seven people are dead and 10 others hospitalized after an explosion leveled a chocolate factory in the town of West Reading. The blast destroyed one building and damaged another at the R.M. Palmer Company plant, known for producing seasonal chocolates, including Easter bunnies. Investigators have not yet determined the cause of the explosion. 
Philadelphia officials said Sunday tap water remains safe to drink until the end of today, following earlier warnings not to drink from the tap after a chemical processing plant released as much as 12,000 gallons of acrylic latex polymer into a tributary of the Delaware River. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney said late Sunday no contaminants had yet been found in the city's tap water system as authorities continue to conduct tests. The Guardian is reporting a police officer fired pepper ball rounds into the closed tent of slain activist Manuel Paez Teran before shooting at them with live fire leading to their death. The activist, who went by the name Tortuguita, was killed while defending George's Wilani Forest from the construction of the $90 million police training facility dubbed Cop City. A new information surrounding Tortuguita's killing was recently revealed in police incident reports reports and confirms Atlanta police planned and led the deadly operation of January 18th. In financial news, First Citizens Bank announced it'll purchase a large portion of the assets of the failed Silicon Valley Bank. Seventeen former branches of SVB will now operate as First Citizens Banks. The FDIC took over SVB earlier this month after a run on the bank caused it to collapse in the second-largest bank failure in U.S. history. And House Republicans passed a bill increasing parental control in public schools, including a right to review curricula and reading lists, as well as books that are available at school libraries. The so-called parental rights have become a flashpoint for conservatives and has led to over 1,600 books being banned in school libraries and classrooms from mid-2021 to 2022. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the Democrat-controlled Senate will not take up the bill, which he called Orwellian to the core. Fellow New York lawmaker Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez spoke out against the measure Thursday on the House floor. Look at these books that have already been banned due to Republican measures. The Life of Rosa Parks. This apparently is too woke by the Republican Party. Song of Solomon. Is, is unacceptable to Republican politics. 40% of banned books have report, reported are significantly addressing and specifically addressing LGBT issues. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the growing political crisis in Israel. Workers across Israel are taking part in a general strike today to protest plans by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to disempower Israel's judiciary. Critics say the moves could turn Israel into a dictatorship. The strike has shut down Israel's two main seaports. Flights have been suspended at Israel's Ben-Gurion Airport. The strike has also shut down schools, banks and other institutions. Over the weekend, hundreds of thousands of Israelis took part in protests, many blocked roads and highways, shutting down large parts of the country. On Sunday, Prime Minister Netanyahu fired his defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who had warned that plans to overhaul the judiciary posed a, quote, clear, immediate and tangible threat to the security of the state. These are the voices of some of the protesters in Tel Aviv this weekend. Soldiers from the Yom Kippur War, this is an emergency time for the democracy of Israel, and we all here to fight for the liberal democracy and our rights in uh, the Jewish state, which was established 75 years ago. 
We all have to fight for our rights because of the plans of Benjamin Netanyahu that want to turn this nation into a dictatorship. What we are doing here tonight is protesting against the government, wants to get all the power to itself and take all the rights from our citizens. And this is why we're here, fighting for our democracy. As hundreds of thousands of Israelis call for preserving democracy in Israel, few are demanding democratic rights for all Palestinians in these protests. We go now to Tel Aviv, where we're joined by Haggai Matar, executive director of Plus 972 magazine. Haggai, thank you so much for joining us. There's so much happening and so quickly changing in the streets right now of Israel. Talk about the significance of the mass protest and the firing, uh, Netanyahu's firing of the defense minister. Thank you, Amy, and thank you for having me. Uh, this is a truly an unprecedented moment, and unprecedented is, is uh, an understatement. We've never seen such a massive, powerful, committed protest movement in Israeli history. Uh, there's really been nothing even to compare it to. Um, right now, people are demonstrating throughout the country. People are blocking main roads and seaports and so on, uh, with the unions just joining today. I think it's interesting to note, and not a coincidence, speaking of Palestinians, that the reason that kind of really pushed the unions to join, the universities uh, and others, kind of the larger institutions to join the protest movement, is the firing of the defense minister, who said that the steps Netanyahu was taking is threatening Israel's defense. Um, that is still kind of the rallying message for many Israelis for this protest movement. Um, and while the chants are for democracy and for equality, it still feels like for many people it is an internal Jewish conversation. At the same time, I have to say it's, it's incredible and very inspiring to see such a force of people coming out and trying to defend democracy, albeit limited and only for Jews, um, which is, of course, no democracy at all. But still, the, the, the power of it is, is truly incredible. So, Yoav Gallant, the uh, Israeli defense minister who resigned, it's not as if he didn't support weakening the judiciary as Netanyahu is pushing it through. But explain what he objected to. Also, the consul general, the Israeli consul general here in New York, just resigned. Yes, the Israeli consul general is, is a liberal uh, from the left. He's kind of a, a remnant from the previous government. Uh, and the fact that he stayed this long is surprising. Uh, but for Yav Gallant, he's really uh, a hawk. He's also a war criminal. He was the uh, responsible general for the uh, war crimes of the caste-led operation in Gaza in 2009. Uh, he is no defender of democracy in any way. The only reason he decided to step up against Netanyahu was that the army is basically collapsing. The, the central uh, and most important units that sustain Israel's air force and intelligence corps are basically filled with thousands of people who are saying that they will refuse to continue service or their reserve service if the uh, legal overhaul goes through. So Gallant, as a former general and a defense minister, says we cannot sustain Israel's defense without an army. The army is collapsing because of, of these reforms. It's not that I don't support them. We just don't have a, an army left. Um, so that's where Gallant is coming from. And when Netanyahu's response is not, OK, I'm listening, but actually I'm going to fire you just because you disagree with me. That was kind of the, the last straw that pushed the unions and uh, other major players into the game.
You say he should have been fired, but um, he was fired for the wrong reasons, a guy. The entire government should be fired, but, you know, it's it's there and and everybody there are playing some part in different kinds of war crimes. Uh, and he is being fired for the wrong reasons, yes. So explain what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza right now. I mean, you have this unprecedented mass protest, Hester Drut, the unions demanding um, change and the stopping of what's happening. But how has life changed in the West Bank and Gaza? So Gaza has been very much the same, under the same siege for over 15 years now. Um, just the same situation, uh, which actually means people's lives continuously deteriorating, but not in any very substantial different way now than they were one, two or five years ago. Um, meanwhile, in the West Bank, we have seen... Israel over the past year and a half escalating measures of annexation of uh, plans for ethnic cleansing of attacks on Palestinians, which has led to uh, more and more resistance on the side of Palestinians with the Palestinian Authority basically losing control of entire parts of the West Bank uh, and militants stepping up their attacks on Israelis. Um, and that also has been ongoing since even the, the previous government uh, and is ongoing and escalating these very days. Uh, I think Palestinians also in many ways are just looking at what's happening inside of Israel and waiting to see what plays out and where this is going. Uh, this government, which was seen as a stable, far-right government with very dangerous plans for Palestinians, might collapse within a, a matter of days. Uh, so Palestinians now just uh, started the holy month of Ramadan, uh, always a very strenuous time, uh, are basically looking to see where things are going at, at this moment. I mean, the parallels um, with the United States between Netanyahu and Trump, both are under investigation. Uh, Netanyahu has been indicted for corruption. Trump is about, it looks like, to be indicted. Um, and both trying to now completely going after the judiciary. In fact, if these judicial changes went through, wouldn't that also benefit Netanyahu personally? Yes, of course. That, that is his own personal motivation. There's kind of a cluster of motivations for this uh, attack on the judicial system and, and Netanyahu's personal and some other ministers' uh, personal interests for their um, um, indictments for corruption are one element. The other elements are plans from the religious parties to promote a clerical uh, agenda, of a very extreme uh, agenda of Jewish religion taking over um, the somewhat secular nature of the country and plans for, for uh, forced annexation and forced deportation of Palestinians. All these things are things that the judicial system, which has not been an ally to Palestinians in any way or a defender of human rights in any way, has put in place some checks and balances, and those are the checks and balances around corruption, religion, and, and annexation that, that they're trying to dismantle right now. Um, the difference, by the way, between Israel and the U.S. is that Israel doesn't have a constitution and doesn't have any mechanisms to stop this from happening, uh, except from the power of the people that are out in the streets. And what would happen if the government did collapse? I mean, there every hour it's being said that Netanyahu is about to address the nation, though he hasn't. We, we are hearing that Netanyahu is very likely in the coming few hours to actually announce a halt 
to the reforms. He understands that he cannot move forward, uh, that the, the power against him is greater than he's ever seen before internally. Uh, so we will announce a halt most likely. And then the question is what happens next? Will he succeed to still uh, take charge of his government? His coalition is falling apart with the far right saying, if you're stopping the reform, we're going to leave. So it's uh, likely that the coalition will collapse. And then what comes next? The highest chances are for a new sort of coalition between the right and the center um, in which they will kind of aim to create a government of healing, so-called, um, and, and try to offer some protections to the judicial system and stem the far right, but also protect the essential nature of the state as an apartheid state. That will be kind of off the table, off negotiations. Um, I think there are, and the protest movement will accept that. The protest movement will, will accept that uh, warmly. Um, I think there are questions as to uh, to what degree will Palestinians accept that and to what degree will international allies of Israel that have been very, very concerned with what's been happening, including international uh, finance and big capital that has been pulling away money, divesting from the Israeli economy, to what degree will it be willing to reinvest and re-engage with Israel um, without and get, uh, some process with Palestinians without Israel adopting um, equality and an inter-apartheid as a policy. Um, if the international community accepts Israel under these conditions of yes to apartheid, no to the judicial reform, that will mean that the system will stay basically as is. Um, we can only hope and demand that international players uh, hold Israel to account also on apartheid and not only on the recent measures. Hagai Matar, I want to thank you for being with us, executive director of Plus 972 magazine, speaking to us from Tel Aviv. When we come back, a quarter of humanity lacks access to clean drinking water. We'll look at the fight to protect water across the globe. Stay with us. Johnny Kolonsky here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to a somewhat overlooked but hugely significant new report by the United Nations that warns a quarter of humanity lacks access to safe drinking water. Nearly half the global population has no access to basic sanitation. Unless action is taken, 60 percent of the world's population could face water supply issues by 2050. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres addressed the findings at the U.N. Water Conference here in New York last week, the first such event in nearly half a century. Water is a human right and the common development denominator to shape a better future. 
but water is in deep trouble. We are draining humanity's lifeblood through vampiric overconsumption and unsustainable use and evaporating it through global eating. The Secretary General follows other U.N. Secretaries General who warned of the link between water and the potential for war, including Butchers Butchers Ghali in 1985, who said, quote, the next war in the Middle East will be fought over water, not politics. And Ban Ki-moon, who warned in 2007, quote, water scarcity threatens economic and social gains and is a potent fuel for wars and conflict. For more, we're joined by two guests who work in areas facing some of the worst water scarcity. In Phoenix, Arizona, Mohammed Mahmoud is with us, director of the Climate and Water Program at the Middle East Institute. And in the capital of Nigeria, in Abuja, Boluwaji Onabolu is with us, president of the Network of Nigerian Female Professionals um, in Nigeria and the diaspora, which focuses on water, sanitation, hygiene, and public health. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Let's begin with Abuluwaji. If you can talk about what's happening across the continent of Africa, the numbers are absolutely terrifying of who has access to water, to clean drinking water, not to mention sanitation. Thank you very much, Amy, um, for having me on. Um, before I speak about Africa, the World Water Report that you referred to has actually brought to the attention of the world something that is a bit different from what um, we in the sector have been looking at. Usually, reports would say um, this number, this proportion of people globally will not have access to basic water and sanitation, for example. But in this report, this report says that if urgent action is not taken, the number of people that will not have access to basic drinking water will double from 2016, which was about 930 million people, to 2.4 billion people. Currently, as you mentioned, we're already at 2 billion people. Now, a linked report, the World Water Assessment Report, um, did an assessment in Nigeria, uh, sorry, in Africa for the very first time. And I'd like to just quote some of the figures or the findings. In Africa, not a single country, not to talk of the sub any sub-region, scored above 90 out of the 100 possible points. The five top countries had just about an average of 60 to 70. In the past five years, 25 out of 54 countries in Africa made no progress at all. Access to basic drinking water ranged from 37% in the Central African region to about 99% in Egypt. Coming to my country, Nigeria, which is very pivotal because Nigeria, with its population of about 200 million people, has more people than the whole of West Africa combined. And in terms of 
regression, access to basic water um, reduced from 67% in from 70% in 2018 to 67% in 2021. What are the implications? The World Water Report reminds us, and like you said, um, the current UN Secretary General and the past ones have said that access to water, water security is pivotal to achieving every other human right, every sustainable goal. So for us in Africa, um, it's the major, major issue, the impact on health, impact of ed on education, impact on every on economy, impact on security. So this World Water Report calls for synergizing, speeding up, scaling up, and sustaining. I'll leave it at that for now. Mohammed Mahmoud, uh, you are Director of Climate and Water Program at the Middle East Institute. We're speaking to you in Phoenix. Can you talk about what particularly is happening in the Middle East right now around water? We always hear about oil and gas and wars for oil. What about wars for water? Well, good morning, Amy, and thanks again for having me on the show. Um, I think just to link with the report and uh, what was just mentioned, one of the main takeaways is that we're certainly not on track for the sixth sustainable development goal as it relates to clean, safe water and sanitation to meet the mark that was intended by 2030. And I think that's just one piece of the puzzle when we look at those issues related to water quality. Similarly, in the Middle East, uh, North Africa, and certainly uh, other parts of the world share this issue, issue, when it comes to water security, I think there's multiple dimensions that are being impacted. One on the water supply side, and that is overlaid with the impacts of climate change. Certainly, climate change uh, amplification has caused droughts, uh, certainly in the region, to become more sustained. Uh, and severe. The region itself is already naturally prone to being dry and arid, uh, but with the overlay of climate change, freshwater sources have been stressed. I mean, to put into perspective, 12 of the 15 most water-stressed countries in the world reside in the Middle East and North Africa region. So what does that look like? Groundwater supplies have been the predominant source of supply for the region for, uh, for as long as uh, folks have been utilizing water. Uh, those have been over-depleted. Uh, the few surface water systems and rivers, uh, certainly the two biggest, uh, the Nile River Basin and the Tigris-Euphrates system, because of the impacts of climate change, uh, these, high, these uh, systems that rely on high elevation uh, water being generated from snowpack or precipitation are experiencing less uh, uh, generation of, of water from these higher elevations. That causes a, an issue uh, certainly when we think about transboundary nations, uh, certainly in the Nile, uh, Ethiopia being upstream in the Blue Nile, uh, Egypt, Sudan downstream, uh, causing tensions uh, because of the reduction of the water supply. Similarly, in the Tigris-Euphrates between Turkey downstream to Syria and Iraq. That's just the water supply angle. When we look at water demand, with less water available, there's a lot more competition from the different sectors of water use. 
the biggest actually is agriculture, which was mentioned in the report itself. Uh, about 60 to 70 percent of uh, water use globally on average and, and certainly from country to country goes towards agricultural water use uh, to support food production and food security. Uh, an order of magnitude less than that is water needed for human consumption, so residential or urban water demand. And then uh, the other category is industrial water use to support manufacturing, uh, energy production, power plants need water for cooling and so forth. So with less water, these sectors are in, in essence becoming uh, in, uh, in competition with each other. The other piece uh, that's also of concern is water conveyance issues. Uh, what I mean by that is how do we move waters, uh, water from the source to where it's being used, whether through open channel canals, conveyance pipelines. Certain parts of the Middle East have water conveyance infrastructure that is so old or has, has uh, been neglected in terms of repair and maintenance. Certainly when we look at places like Lebanon and Jordan, some parts of their water infrastructure is losing up to 40 to 50 percent of the water being transmitted from source. Uh, at least to residential demand. That's a lot of water wasted that could be saved to, to help mitigate some of these uh, issues of not enough water and too much demand. And then, of course, the last piece, which we uh, just really talked about, is water quality. Uh, when we think of where water tends to be transmitted or conveyed the most, these tend to be towards urban centers where mo more populations reside in the region. The, the drawback of that is those communities that live in rural areas outside of these uh, more, con more dense networks uh, uh, where water is being conveyed from source to, to utilization, uh, those areas tend to be neglected. And in some cases, the concern, and we've seen this in Syria certainly over the last few years because of conflict and other issues happening there, that these rural communities that are outside these urban centers because of economic conditions, rising costs, uh, not being uh, within the networks of water transmission, tend to take water directly from these surface water systems like the Tigris-Euphrates uh, directly. And of course, uh, without proper treatment and adequate water treatment, uh, many of these people can fall ill and could cause an outbreak of water-borne uh, illnesses. So certainly the report highlights, I think, uh, the, the water quality component in terms of sanitation, clean water, does mention the issue of, of agricultural water use being so high, but I think there's also these other issues that compound uh, the water security question, certainly in the Middle East, but you can certainly draw parallels to other parts of the world as well. And as we begin to wrap up, Oluwaji Onobolu, um, you have talked about water rights as human rights. And you say that um, people should be held—who are in power should be held accountable for war crimes. Explain. Okay. Well, um, I, I used the word water crimes. I said if there, if there is— a term called war crimes. Why don't we have water crimes? Because we normally say water is life. However, in 300, for 353 million people in Africa, those 353 million people that lack access to opportunities that health, um, income generation, education opens for them because the political leadership has failed to 
provide opportunities for them to access this basic resource. I believe that the sector and the world really should be talking about water crimes in terms of political accountability, because without accountability, we will not be able to ensure that the resources are going to where they are supposed to go to and to whom they are supposed to well, reach. Bolawaji Onabolu, we want to thank you for being with us, president of an NGO in Nigeria focused on water sanitation, hygiene and public health. Nigeria, the most populous nation in Africa. And Mohamed Mahmoud, director of climate and water program at the Middle East Institute, speaking to us from Arizona. We're going to stay in Arizona now. This is Democracy Now! As we continue from Run River, talking about the Nile, to the Colorado River. At the U.N. Water Development Conference, it was U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who delivered the U.S. statement at the U.N. Water Conference. She also spoke about indigenous governance of shared waters and the importance of indigenous-led conservation in addressing the climate and drought crises. This comes after the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments last Monday on whether to allow the Navajo Nation to pursue a claim that the federal government has a duty to address the Native American tribes' water rights. Here's now the environmental news site, Grist, reported on last week's Supreme Court hearing, where the justices seem narrowly divided. Quote, if the Navajo win, they will have a narrow but workable path to secure a significant water settlement on the Colorado River. But if they lose, their litigation over the river will Will come to an end, forcing them to look elsewhere for a solution to decades of water access problems. For more, we're joined in Fort Defiance, Arizona, by Crystal Tully Cordova, principal hydrologist for the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources Water Management Branch, covering 27,000 square miles of reservation land that straddles New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, much of which borders the Colorado River. Welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about your experience growing up without running water as part of the Navajo Nation, who lives in the Colorado River Basin, and the ongoing lack of access to water there now as the West battles a historic drought. Thank you, Amy. The opportunity to be able to be in the position that I am now in is to be able to secure a sustainable water future for Navajo residents within the Navajo Nation. And it's important to consider what the challenges are associated with, you know, the drought that we've been experiencing, the impact on water supply. Within the Navajo Nation, you know, we are securing our water future by um, sec securing our water rights and protecting our water rights, resolving, trying to resolve some of our water rights that we have that are unresolved, while at the same time, we also have projects that we are diversifying our water portfolio with projects like the Navajo Gallup Water Supply that will bring San Juan River water, a tributary to the Colorado River, to be able to service 43 Navajo communities. Currently, we have the Cutter Lateral, a portion of that big water project that is servicing eight Navajo communities currently. And, you know, the listeners might be curious, why is there a need to be able to secure the water future? Um, as described earlier by the people that were a part of the show, you know, groundwater challenges are definitely impact of our availability to access the water. 
And so we in the Navajo Nation, we have water quality challenges such as brackish water. So if people don't know what brackish water is, it's salty water. Um, in addition to that, we have legacy mining issues. And added on top of all of that are climate change impacts to waters. And so shallow aquifers um, that we call alluvial aquifers that are very dependent on precipitation recharge, but in a time of prolonged drought, definitely have their challenges with water availability. Well, let me ask you, Crystal Tully Cordova, about water rights, and if you can talk about what's at stake in the Supreme Court case. So I am hopeful um, for the Supreme Court case. At this time, you know, we really don't have an understanding what the outcome might be, and we won't have an outcome of what that might be until June. Uh, but in the Navajo Nation, what we continue to do is to work on water projects, regional water supply systems that interconnect smaller public water systems to be able to secure our water future. Can you talk about the water infrastructure and particularly the Biden administration and its stance on Navajo land? Yeah, so the— there has been funding that has been available under the American Rescue Plan Act, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The Navajo Nation, of its own funding of ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act funding, that it received, invested $215 million for water and wastewater projects. And then even at a community level, uh, the community representatives had another opportunity to be able to invest in water and wastewater infrastructure projects with the funding that they've received as well. With regards to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Indian Health Service, which also helps um, by connecting homes to the public water system, received $3.5 billion under the, the, what is also known as a bipartisan infrastructure law. And we are hopeful that this funding, you know, that we're working every day to be able to close the clean water access gap within the Navajo Nation. And there are a large number of projects that need to be done, regional water systems that provide that water supply that allows the opportunity for connection of homes to clean, reliable drinking water. At the same time, it's also important to understand, you know, what the U.N. had um, in its sustainable water report, sanitation, you know, water in is water out. And it equally important is because both of those uh, contribute to a successful water system. So we're working on both accesses for water, both sanitation and also access to clean water. Crystal Tully Cordova, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Principal Hydrologist for the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources, Water Management Branch. Next up, we remember the human rights leader, lawyer, Randall Robinson, founder of TransAfrica. Stay with us. Quand tu rêves la nuit exilée de ton île Entends-tu tous ces cris, ces rumeurs de ta ville Les musiques dans les cours, les jazzeries des commères Les enfants de Carrefour et les vagues de la mer Toi tu traînes ta vie et ton mal du pays ami 
The Mal du Pays Homesickness by the Haitian singer-songwriter Mano Charlemagne. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we end today's show, remembering the human rights leader, lawyer, Randall Robinson, who's died at the age of 81 in St. Kitts, where he's lived since 2001. Randall Robinson was the founder of TransAfrica, played a key role in the launching of the Free South Africa movement, was arrested many times at the South African embassy in Washington, D.C., protesting against the apartheid regime. 2007, I interviewed him about his book, An Unbroken Agony, Haiti, From Revolution to the Kidnapping of a President. He began by talking about how broadcaster Tavis Smiley and former California Congress member Ron Dellums learned of U.S. plans to oust Aristide. When I was a child growing up in Richmond, Virginia, uh, we were called Negroes. No one I knew knew why we were called that. No one knew the provenance of that, uh, that word. It had no connection to what we might have been before we were blocked from view by that lethal, opaque space of slavery. Uh, and so w we didn't know anything about ourselves, except we'd been called this, but not by ourselves. And it, it, it turns out that it's much like the case of the sardine. There's no such thing as a sardine, as a fish living free in the ocean. It only becomes one when it is captured and put in a can. And we were only called Negroes. Uh, when we were labeled during slavery as that, as, as a way of severing us from any memory of what we had been. And so we lost our, our mothers, our fathers, our families, our religions, our languages, our cultures, our memories of what we had been. And so we thought we had no history uh, before uh, slavery. And this name, this new name, this new label, help to facilitate that loss of memory. Now, memory is the active agent of all collective social progress. If you can't remember yourself, uh, you, you, you're suffering from serious debilitation. This novel is the story of an extraordinary woman who is a poor blind waitress in Richmond, uh, Virginia, who remembers past lives. And so she remembers uh, Timbuktu in the late 1300s when her father was a priest who under, um, uh, went cataract surgery at the University at Timbuktu. Uh, she remembers her days in ancient Egypt uh, when the two Egypts were united uh, thousands of years uh, before. She remembers lives in West Africa. She remembers all of this, and she, she, she uh, tells it to her grandson, who wants to be a writer. And they have a special relationship, and she swears him to secrecy that he tell no one that she has these memories, so people will think she's a bit fruity, as she says. But she remembers these lives in extraordinary detail, and he is inspired by it. You see, he gains his confidence from it. And this is, of course, to symbolize um, the enormous consequence. Uh, sometimes when we think of slavery, we calculate the economic consequence of it. But we have not calculated the psychosocial consequence of it 
unless we factor in the loss of memory, which was occasioned by a deliberate and systematic uh, program uh, imposed um, uh, from those, uh, by those who controlled us. When you were at Trans-Africa and, uh, and uh, we were working in Washington, the climate in Washington in the 80s and 90s was just more incarceration, more incarceration. Did any of the, pol the political leaders that you dealt with realize the, the long-term impact of what was happening? I, I recall that. Uh, when we were first being arrested at the embassy and I went to jail at first night, um, everyone uh, in the lockup uh, with me was uh, was black. This was you were being arrested for protesting apartheid. For protesting at the embassy. Everyone was uh, was was black. And I, I had some sense of this. I think at the time I was told that one out of every three uh, young black males in the District of Columbia was under one or another arm of the criminal uh, justice system. And what stunned me about it, and what continues to bother me about it, is that when we were struggling during a civil rights movement, some of us were in better positions to benefit from uh, this change that was, uh, was coming than others were. And so while we had all been in the same boat during segregation, uh, when change came, uh, we weren't all in the same boat anymore. Some of us could escape, but others of us were bottom stuck. And I, I, I don't believe that those of us who escaped uh, worked as hard, uh, as tenaciously since to remember those of us who could not. And, and, and the result is that we now see our future as a people in America being warehoused. Um, how can we not uh, be um, uh, concerned uh, in some relentless way about the fate of all of these young black people mm -hmm. who are being imprisoned? Mm -hmm. uh, because we are indissolubly bound up with them. Their, their future is our future. Our future is their future. And we, we have to be mindful of that. But it, it doesn't so much penetrate um, if we, we don't have news of it every day. So many people don't know. Randall Robinson, talking about movements. You spearheaded the anti-apartheid movement in this country, getting arrested numerous times, among other places, in front of the South African embassy. You fasted almost unto the death to stop the—to— uh, uh, fight the U.S. government, President Clinton, I think, at the time, to allow Haitians to come into this country at the time of the bloody coup of um, 1991 to 1994 in Haiti. Um, talk about the power of movements and what you see uh, from your perspective now living in St. Kitts, having quit America, the name of one of your books, um, what you think needs to happen in this country. Just 12 percent of the people who commit nonviolent drug infractions are black. I think um, 56 percent of those, nonetheless, who are prosecuted, and something on the order of 75 percent of those who are imprisoned. I mean, we, we can see the striking unfairness of it. But we have to find a way to get that information to people. Um, outrage has to be informed by information to go anywhere. South Africa worked because everybody knew about the apartheid system 
when we went to jail. And so it was instant. This is a little bit more difficult. I mean, we're backward in the world in so many ways. Uh, we find ourselves um, in bed with China, uh, Iran, and two or three other nations in our embrace of the death penalty, when the rest of the world is moving in the other direction. But 75% of those executed are black and Hispanic. And so, the, 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 the unfairness of it is seen in the statistics of who pays and who doesn't. Um, we get sentences twice as long, as long for commission of the same crime. It's just fundamentally unfair. And the question, Amy, is how we can put this together in a way that is consumable and inspiring to people to let them know that this is not just a black um, or racial issue. It's an issue for all Americans who uh, care about democracy and equity and fair play and decency. And that's what we have to do. We're killing our own country's future is what we're doing. Uh, and we're killing genius in jail cells that uh, does not have a chance to, um, to blossom and to flower. That was Randall Robinson in 2013 in an interview Juan Gonzalez and I did with him and Michelle Alexander. Uh, you can see the whole interview at democracynow.org. We'll also link to his interview in 2007 on Haiti. Randall Robinson just died this weekend at the age of 81 in St. Kitts, where he'd lived since 2001. He was the founder of the group TransAfrica, played a key role in the launching of the Free South Africa movement. He was arrested many times at the South African embassy in Washington, D.C., protesting against the apartheid regime. His books included The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks, and Quitting America, The Departure of a Black Man from His Native Land, as well as the book An Unbroken Agony, Haiti, From Revolution to the Kidnapping of a President. To see all of our interviews, go to democracynow.org with Randall Robinson. Democracy Now's Juan Gonzalez is moderating an online panel today on Chicago's 2023 mayoral race, reclaiming Harold Washington's multiracial coalition. You can see details at democracynow.org. Democracy Now is also currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. You can learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Charina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley. John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. To see all of our interview segments, you can go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman.